This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Napoleon of Notting Hill by G. K. Chesterton Section 4 Book 2 Chapter 1 The Charter of the Cities Lambert was standing bewildered outside the door of the king's apartments, amid the scurry of astonishment and ridicule. He was just passing out into the street, in a dazed manner, when James Barker dashed by him. "'Where are you going?' he asked. "'To stop all this tomfoolery, of course,' replied Barker, and he disappeared into the room. He entered it headlong, slamming the door and slapping his incomparable silk hat on the table. His mouth opened, but before he could speak, the king said, "'Your hat, if you please.' Fidgeting with his fingers, and scarcely knowing what he was doing, the young politician held it out. The king placed it on his own chair, and sat on it. "'A quaint old custom,' he explained, smiling above the ruins. When the king receives the representatives of the house of Barker, the hat of the latter is immediately destroyed in this manner.' It represents the absolute finality of the act of homage expressed in the removal of it. It declares that never until that hat shall once more appear upon your head, a contingency which I firmly believe to be remote, shall the house of Barker rebel against the crown of England. Barker stood with clenched fists and shaking lip. Your jokes, he began, and my property, and then exploded with an oath and stopped again. "'Continue, continue,' said the king, waving his hands. "'What does it all mean?' cried the other, with a gesture of passionate rationality. "'Are you mad?' "'Not in the least,' replied the king pleasantly. "'Madmen are always serious. They go mad from lack of humour. "'You're looking serious yourself, James.' "'Why can't you keep it to your own private life?' expostulated the other. "'You've got plenty of money and plenty of houses now to play in the fool in. "'But the interests of the public—' "'Epigrammatic,' said the king, shaking his fingers sadly at him. "'None of your daring scintillations here. "'As to why I don't do it in private, I rather fail to understand your question. "'The answer is of comparative limpidity. "'I don't do it in private because it is funnier to do it in public. "'You appear to think that it would be amusing to be dignified in the banquet hall "'and in the street, and at my own fireside. "'I could procure a fireside.' to keep the company in a roar. But that is what everyone does. Everyone is grave in public and funny in private. My sense of humor suggests the reversal of this. It suggests that one should be funny in public and solemn in private. I desire to make the state functions, parliaments, coronations, and so on, one roaring old-fashioned pantomime. But on the other hand, I shut myself up alone in a small storeroom for two hours a day, where I am so dignified that I come out quite ill. By this time Barker was walking up and down the room, his frock-coat flapping like the black wings of a bird. "'Well, you will ruin the country, that's all,' he said shortly. "'It seems to me,' said Auberon, "'that the tradition of ten centuries is being broken, "'and the house of Barker is rebelling against the crown of England. "'It would be with regret, for I admire your appearance.' that I should be obliged forcibly to decorate your head with the remains of this hat, but... 
"'What I can't understand,' said Barker, flinging up his fingers with a feverish American movement, "'is why you don't care about anything else but your games.' The king stopped sharply in the act of lifting the silken remnants, dropped them, and walked up to Barker, looking at him steadily. "'I made a kind of vow,' he said, "'that I would not talk seriously, which always means answering silly questions. But the strong man will always be gentle with politicians.' The shape my scornful looks deride required a god to form, if I may so theologically express myself, and for some reason I cannot in the least understand, I feel impelled to answer that question of yours, and to answer it as if there were really such a thing in the world, as a serious subject. You ask me why I don't care for anything else. Can you tell me, in the name of all gods you don't believe in, why I should care for anything else? "'Don't you realize common public necessities?' cried Barker. "'Is it possible that a man of your intelligence does not know that it is in everyone's interest? "'Don't you believe in Zoroaster? "'Is it possible that you neglect mumbo-jumbo?' returned the king with startling animation. "'Does a man of your intelligence come to me with these damned early Victorian ethics? "'If on studying my features and manner you detect any particular resemblance to the Prince Consort, "'I assure you you are mistaken.' Did Herbert Spencer ever convince you? Did he ever convince anybody? Did he ever for one mad moment convince himself that it must be to the interest of the individual to feel a public spirit? Do you believe that if you rule your department badly, you stand any more chance, or one-half the chance, of being guillotined that an angler stands of being pulled into the river by a strong pike? Herbert Spencer refrained from theft for the same reason that he refrained from wearing feathers in his hair, because he was an English gentleman with different tastes. I am an English gentleman with different tastes. He liked philosophy. I like art. He liked writing ten books on the nature of human society. I liked to see the Lord Chamberlain walking in front of me with a piece of paper pinned to his coat-tails. It is my humour. Are you answered? At any rate, I have said my last serious word today, and my last serious word I trust for the remainder of my life in this paradise of fools. The remainder of my conversation with you today, which I trust will be long and stimulating, I propose to conduct in a new language of my own, by means of rapid and symbolic movements of the left leg. And he began to pirouette slowly around the room, with a preoccupied expression. Barker ran round the room after him bombarding him with demands and entreaties, but he received no response, except in the new language. He came out banging the door again, and sick like a man coming on shore. As he strode along the streets, he found himself suddenly opposite Chicanani's restaurant, and for some reason there rose up before him the green fantastic figure of the Spanish general, standing as he had seen him last at the door, with the words on his lips, You cannot argue with the choice of the soul. The king came out from his dancing with the air of a man of business, legitimately tired. He put on an overcoat, lit a cigar, and went out to the purple night. "'I will go,' he said, and mingle with the people. He passed swiftly up a street in the neighborhood of Notting Hill, when suddenly he felt a hard object driven into his waistcoat. He paused, put up his single eyeglasses, and beheld a boy with a wooden sword and a paper cocked hat wearing that expression of awed satisfaction which a child contemplates his work when he has hit someone very hard. The king gazed thoughtfully for some time at his assailant, and slowly took a notebook from his breast pocket. "'I have a few notes,' he said, for my dying speech. 
and he turned over the leaves. Dying speeches for political assassination, ditto. If by former friend, hmm, dying speech for death at hands of injured husband, hmm, dying speech for same, cynical. I'm not quite sure which meets the present. I am the king of the castle, said the boy, truculently, and very pleased with nothing in particular. The king was a kind-hearted man, and very fond of children, like all people who are fond of the ridiculous. Infant, he said, I am glad you are so stalwart a defender of your old and violent Notting Hill. Look up nightly to that peak, my child, where it lifts itself among the stars so ancient, so lonely, so unutterably Notting, so long as you are ready to die for the sacred mountain, even if it were ringed with all the armies of Bayswater. The king stopped suddenly, and his eyes shone. Perhaps, he said, perhaps the noblest of all my conceptions, a revival of the arrogance of the old medieval cities applied to our glorious suburbs. Clapham with a city guard, Wimbledon with a city wall, Surbiton tolling a bell to raise its citizens, West Hampstead going into battle with its own banner. It shall be done. I, the king, have said it. And hastily presenting the boy with half-crown, remarking, for the war-chest of Notting Hill, he ran violently home at such a rate of speed that crowds followed him for miles. On reaching his study, he ordered a cup of coffee and plunged into profound meditation upon the project. At length, he called his favorite equerry, Captain Bowler, for whom he had a deep affection, founded principally upon the shape of his whiskers. Bowler, he said, isn't there some society of historical research or something of which I am an honorary member? Yes, sir, said Captain Bowling, rubbing his nose. You are a member of the Encouragers of Egyptian Renaissance, and the Teutonic Tombs Club, and the Society for the Recovery of London Antiquities, and... That is admirable, said the King. The London Antiquities does my trick. Go to the Society for the Recovery of London Antiquities, and speak to the secretaries and their sub-secretary, and their president, and their vice-president, saying, The King of England is proud but the honorary member of the Society for the Recovery of London Antiquities is prouder than kings. I should like to tell you of certain discoveries I have made touching the neglected traditions of the London boroughs. The revelations may cause some excitement, stirring burning memories and touching old wounds in Shepherd's Bush and Bayswater in Pimlico and South Kensington. The king hesitates, but the honorary member is firm. I approach you, invoking the vows of my initiation, the sacred seven cats, the poker of perfection, and the ordeal of the indescribable instant. Forgive me if I mix you up with the clan of Gale, or some other club I belong to, and ask you to permit me to read a paper at your next meeting on the wars of the London boroughs. Say all this to the society, Bowler. Remember it very carefully, for it is most important, and I have forgotten it altogether and send me another cup of coffee and some of the cigars that we keep for vulgar and successful people. I am going to write my paper. The Society for the Recovery of London Antiquities met a month after in a corrugated iron hall on the outskirts of one of the southern suburbs of London. A large number of people had collected there under the coarse and glaring gas jets when the king arrived, perspiring and genial, on taking off his great coat he was perceived to be in evening dress wearing the garter. His appearance at the small table, adorned only with a glass of water, was received with respectful cheering. 
The chairman, Mr. Huggins, said that he was sure they had all been pleased to listen to such distinguished lectures as they had heard for some time past. Hear, hear! Mr. Burton, hear, hear! Mr. Cambridge, Professor King, loud and continued cheers. Our old friend Peter Jessop, Sir William White, loud laughter, and other eminent men had done honour to their little venture. Cheers! But there were other circumstances which lent a certain unique quality to the present occasion. Hear, hear! So far as his recollection went, and in connection with the Society for the Recovery of London Antiquities, it went very far, loud cheers. He did not remember that any of their lecturers had borne the title of King. He would therefore call upon King Auberon briefly to address the meeting. The king began by saying that this speech might be regarded as the first declaration of his new policy for the nation. At this supreme hour of my life I feel that to no one but the members of the Society for the Recovery of London Antiquities can I open my heart. Cheers! If the word turns upon my policy and the storms of popular hostility begin to rise, no, no, I feel that it is here with my brave recoverers around me that I can best meet them sword in hand. Loud cheers. His Majesty then went on to explain that, now old age was creeping upon him, he proposed to devote his remaining strength to bringing about a keener sense of local patriotism in the various municipalities of London. How few of them knew of the legends of their own boroughs! How many there were who had never heard of the true origin of the Wink of Wandsworth! What a large proportion of the younger generation in Chelsea neglected to perform the old Chelsea chuff. Pimlico no longer pumped the Pimleys. Battersea had forgotten the name of Blick. There was a short silence, and then a voice said, Shame! The king continued, Being called, however unworthily, to this high estate, I have resolved that, so far as possible, this neglect shall cease. I desire no military glory. I lay claim to no constitutional equality with Justinian or Alfred. If I can go down to history as the man who saved from extinction a few old English customs, if our descendants can say that it was through this man, humble as he was, that the ten turnips are still eaten at Fulham, and the Putney Parish Councillor still shaves one half of his head, I shall look my great fathers reverently, but not fearfully in the face, when I go down to the last house of kings. The king paused visibly affected, but collecting himself, resumed once more. I trust that to very few of you at least I need to dwell on the sublime origins of these legends. The very names of your boroughs bear witness to them. So long as Hammersmith is called Hammersmith, its people will live in the shadow of that primal hero, the blacksmith, who led the democracy of the broad way into battle till he drove the chivalry of Kensington before him and overthrew them at that place which in honour of the best blood of the defeated aristocracy is still called Kensington Gore. Men of Hammersmith will not fail to remember that the very name of Kensington originated from the lips of their hero. For at the great banquet of reconciliation held after the war, when the disdainful oligarchs declined to join in the songs of the men of the Broadway, which are to this day of a rude and popular character, the great Republican leader with his rough humour said the words which are written in gold upon his monument. Little birds that can sing and won't sing must be made to sing, so that the eastern knights were called Kansings, or Kensings, ever afterwards. 
but you also have great memories o man of kensington you show that you could sing and sing great war songs even after the dark day of kensington gore history will not forget those three knights who guarded your disordered retreat from hyde park so called from your hiding there those three knights after whom knight's bridge is named nor will it forget the day of your re-emergence purged in the fire of calamity cleansed of your oligarchic corruptions when sword in hand you drove the empire of hammersmith back mile by mile swept it past its own broad way and broke it at last in a battle so long and bloody that the birds of prey have left their name upon it men have called it with austere irony the raven's court i shall not i trust wound the patriotism of bayswater or the lonelier pride of brompton or that of any other historic township by taking these two special examples i select them not because they are more glorious than the rest but partly from personal association i am myself descended from one of the three heroes of knightsbridge and partly from the consciousness that i am an amateur antiquarian and cannot presume to deal with times and places more remote and more mysterious it is not for me to settle the questions between two such men as professor hugg and sir william whisky as to whether notting hill means notting hill in allusion to the rich woods which no longer cover it or whether it is a corruption of nothing ill referring to its reputation among the ancients as an earthly paradise when a podkins and a jossy confessed themselves doubtful about the boundaries of west kensington said to have been traced in the blood of oxen i need not be ashamed to confess a similar doubt i will ask you to excuse me from further history and to assist me with your encouragement in dealing with the problem which faces us to-day is this ancient spirit of the london townships to die out are our omnibus conductors and policemen to lose altogether that light which we see so often in their eyes the dreamy light of old unhappy far-off things and battles long ago to quote the words of a little-known poet who was a friend of my youth i have resolved as i have said so far as possible to preserve the eyes of policemen and omnibus conductors in their present dreamy state or what is a state without dreams and the remedy i propose is as follows to-morrow morning at twenty-five minutes past ten if heaven spares my life i propose to issue a proclamation it has been the work of my life and is about half finished with the assistance of a whisky-soda i shall conclude the other half to-night and my people will receive it to-morrow all these burrows where you were born and hope to lay your bones shall be reinstated in their ancient magnificence hammersmith kensington bayswater chelsea battersea clapham balham and a hundred others each shall immediately build a city wall with gates to be closed at sunset each shall have a city guard armed to the teeth each shall have a banner a coat of arms and if convenient a gathering cry i will not enter into the details now my heart is too full they will be found in the proclamation itself you will all however be subject to enrolment in the local city guards to be summoned together by a thing called the tocsin the meaning of which i am studying in my researches into history personally i believe a tocsin to be some kind of highly paid official if therefore any of you happen to have such a thing as a halberd in the house i should advise you to practice with it in the garden here the king buried his face in his handkerchief 
and hurriedly left the platform, overcome by emotions. The members of the Society for the Recovery of London Antiquities rose in an indescribable state of vagueness. Some were purple with indignation. An intellectual few were purple with laughter. The great majority found their minds a blank. There remains a tradition that one pale face with burning blue eyes remained fixed upon the lecturer, and after the lecture a red-haired boy ran out of the room. End of chapter 1, book 2